0: the announcement. A uh, couple of announcements. Uh, first announcement is the Dean Bible Ministries Board will meet on the 26th, Saturday the 26th of, uh, of October, which is a week from this Saturday, and we will be meeting down here. The board meets from 9 to 10, and then those who are volunteers who work with DBM will be meeting from 10 o'clock to about 12.30 we We'll have lunch down here. Um, that particular Saturday. Then the the following Saturday, on November the 3rd, we'll have the memorial service for my father, who went to be with the Lord last Thursday on Uh, 10-11-12. For a mathematician, math lover, number lover, what a great day to die on, 10-11-12. So he went to be with the Lord, and his memorial service will be on Saturday morning, November the 3rd, at 10.30 in the morning, and I will be uh, be officiating, and then we'll have a reception here uh, following. I can tell this evening that uh, <clears throat> the Word of God is suffering from great competition. Uh, actually, I don't believe that the reason that the numbers are rather sparse this evening or because people are staying home uh, to hopefully watch Romney trounce. President Obama in the debate, I think it's because we have lousy, rainy, drippy, nasty weather outside. So that's why I was sitting, we're back in prayer meeting, and I could hear like a drain running behind me through the wall. It was, I have no idea what that was all about. So the only other things that I can think of in terms of prayer requests continue, Tom Flint came home on Saturday, so we need to continue to pray for him. And uh, his recovery, a lot of discomfort and pain associated uh, associated with that. And then I think Tuts is going to have surgery next week on her shoulder. So we need to be uh, in prayer for those things. Talked to Jim Myers this morning, and things are going very well over there uh, right now. And uh, looking forward to my going over there in January. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the word, By using 1 John 1, 9, simply confessing our sins to God the Father, which means to admit or acknowledge to Him in silent prayer our sins, and we are instantly forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll bow our heads together after a few moments of silent prayer. I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful to come together this evening, grateful because of your grace in our lives that we have uh, a a salvation that is completely uh, accomplished for us, completely paid for, that uh, there's nothing we can do to add to it, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable in your sight, it is the righteousness of Christ that is ours by virtue of in the imputation of righteousness, righteousness through faith alone, just as Abraham was justified by faith alone, that we receive the righteousness of God and it is on the basis of that possession of perfect righteousness that we are declared righteous and have eternal life, not on the basis of anything that we do. Father, we thank you for this time that we can focus on on your word, we pray for our nation, for the freedoms that we have, that they might be preserved, recognizing the critical nature of this coming election, and that despite the fact that there are uh, many who have, um, think that, uh, that the president and his party have the answer, that that indeed is the path to slavery, and we pray that tonight in the debate that his mind would be befuddled and clouded and he will not be able to present his position very well, and we pray that in your sovereign plan we might have a recovery and restoration of this nation, but recognizing that it is not spearheaded by politics, but spearheaded by a people whose heart turns back to you and to the truth of your word, and only on the basis of the truth of your word can we have real peace and prosperity. begins on the inside. Real freedom is ours only in Christ. And that only in, on that basis can we as a nation ever truly understand what it means to be responsible, to take individual responsibility for our own successes and failures, and to push forward for, toward uh, spiritual growth. And that's the strength, the only strength of a people. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us tonight as we study your word in Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're getting into a section we started last night. Looked at the prelude to this section, which began in uh, the last part of Acts chapter nine. And Acts chapter nine, starting in verse thirty-two, we had a shift, as I pointed out last time, to Peter. We have this uh, in the center part of uh, of Acts. We have this transition between the focus on the Jews and the gospel of the kingdom going to the Jews, uh, specifically under the ministry of Peter and the other apostles, although Peter and John are the only ones mentioned, and we haven't heard anything about about John since about Acts chapter 4 and won't hear from him again. But starting in Acts chapter 8, we begin to see this transition to Uh, Saul of Tarsus, he's first mentioned right at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, and then the remainder of that chapter focused on Philip and his evangelistic ministry into Samaria and down south into Judea with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then following that episode, he headed north to Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima, as it was known at the time, which is the focal point of the action in the passage we're looking at uh, tonight in Acts chapter 10. And that is where indeed Philip settled, but it was that was his base of operations. And during that time, during the next three or four years, remember the uh, interlude that we have in chapter 9 focuses on the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, and he's three years in Damascus. So that three-year period comes between chapter 8... And chapter 10, so that we're, now as we get into chapter 10, we are about four and a half to five years after the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about five years down the road. So this is about uh, A.D. uh, 38, and the church has grown and prospered, and Christianity has permeated uh, Galilee in the north, Samaria, in the middle, Judea in the south, and small pockets of Christians, churches, all Jewish, now dot the landscape. And we saw last time in the transition that uh, shifting back from Saul and, and his conversion to Peter, and Peter's ministry, Peter seems to be following up on uh, on Philip's ministry, so that uh, he is going to going around in, in a circuit ministering to different congregations as an apostle. I pointed that out last time that these miracles that are mentioned are reminiscent of the miracles of Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear he's not uh, healing the sick or raising Tabitha from the dead in his power. He's doing it in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's this continuity that comes between uh, what he's doing and what the miracles of the lord jesus christ this establishes his credentials as a prelude to what happens uh, with with cornelius in this uh, in this next session he he performs these miracles now one thing i did not point out last time as luke is reinforcing these these credentials he is uh, the people are going to peter as an apostle to perform these miracles. But before I get ahead of myself here on these maps, I want to just hit the high points again. The key geographical locations mentioned here, Jerusalem I have circled down in the lower right. Jerusalem is about 40 miles uh, due west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. From Jerusalem to Lydda, uh, it's a little, uh, I'm not sure that the perspective's there. It's 25 miles from Jerusalem to Lydda. It is, it's probably, maybe it's 20 miles from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. Maybe I'm off a little bit there. It takes about 40 minutes, though, um, to drive. Uh, Lydda is about 12 miles from Jaffa, as it is pronounced in Hebrew, or Jaffa. Jaffa is in the, where modern Tel Aviv is located. Tel Aviv wraps around Jaffa, which was the ancient seaport from which uh, Jonah hopped on a boat to get away from the will of God. And uh, where where Peter ends up here. And what did I say was the the key lesson that we should always associate with Joppa? It's God's grace to the Gentiles. And that's what chapters ten and eleven are all about. God's grace to the Gentiles. God has always been gracious to the Gentiles. Remember, the promise to Abraham was that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. God doesn't wait until Jesus came along to start having uh, the gospel go out to the Gentiles. We get glimpses of the gospel ministry to Gentiles in the Old Testament, but the purpose of the Old Testament isn't to highlight God's grace to the Gentiles, but to illustrate what God is doing in the history of the Jewish people. And it is here in the New Testament, though, that we see a continuation and an expansion of God's grace to the Gentiles. So the key areas are Lydda or modern Lod, and then we we'll, we saw the two miracles performed there last time, and then we'll go to we end in Joppa or Jaffa where Peter is staying at the home of Simon the tanner, and then from there he will head north in chapter 10 to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, about 35-40 miles north of of Jaffa. Now, in this map, which is a map of the little bit earlier period of time, notice in the lower right-hand corner, this is in the time of the Hasmoneans, early 1st century B.C. before the Romans conquered, and you have Lydda circled, I've circled Jaffa, but where Caesarea is located, we have the ancient name known as Stratos Tower. It is not named Caesarea until we get to the... About 1520 to 15 BC, when this uh, ta- the, uh, town, the city, is given to Herod the Great by Augustus Caesar. And for that, uh, Herod the Great will re- rename it Caesarea. And it's just one of many different towns, cities named Caesarea. There's another, Caesarea Philippi in the very north of of Israel, up near uh, Banias, which is an area that was uh, uh, also named after after Caesar. So we have to distinguish between Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea uh, Maritima. This is the Caesarea Maritima that we're speaking of, of here. So this just gets that geography in your mind as we think about this. Now, I pointed out a minute ago that as we look at these two miracles... We look at the miracle in um, the, the of, of Aeneas and healing Aeneas of his uh, the fact that he was paralyzed, and then restoring life to Tabitha, otherwise known as Dorcas. Tabitha is the Aramaic for uh, gazelle or deer, and Dorcas was the Greek equivalent that this is done for a purpose. These are not random miracles. Miracles in the Bible are not random. Jesus never performed random miracles. There's a significance to all of them. And they were to establish uh, cre- these uh, credentials. And I want you to note that when Peter shows up in, uh, in Lydda and he hears about Aeneas... He comes to Aeneas, and Aeneas has been uh, paralyzed for eight years. Now, this occurs in approximately, remember I said about five years had gone by since the cross. So this is 38. So that means that when did did Aeneas become paralyzed and bedridden? 30. And what was going on in 30 A.D.? Jesus was on the earth, but Jesus didn't heal Aeneas. Jesus could have healed him then. But that wasn't the right time or the right place. God has a right time and a right place for everything. And so Aeneas never was healed while Jesus was walking on the earth. His purpose was to be bedridden for eight years until Peter came along. But there were many other people who were paralyzed who never never saw an apostle or Jesus come and, and heal them because that is not God's purpose. This flies in the face of much of pop evangelical charismatic doctrine of healing that God wants us to be, wants us to be healed, and if you're not healed, it's because you lack faith. That is one of the most guilt-producing false doctrines that, that I've ever run across. Uh, when I was, uh, before I was born, When my mother was pregnant with me, uh, and the due date was at the end of September, and on about somewhere about July 22nd, 23rd, somewhere in there, she succumbed to the polio virus. Harris County at that point had the highest number of polio uh, victims. In fact, this was the last great polio epidemic, and it was centered in Harris County. And so she came down with polio, and about two weeks later, I was born and she was in an iron lung at the time, and I've always heard that story, that she was in an iron lung, and they pulled her out, and pulled me out, and put her back in the iron lung, and as you know, when your parents die, you have to go through their house, and all of the flotsam and jetsam of their life, so I'm going through all these uh, photo albums, somebody, there's a photo gene, there's a shutterbug gene somewhere in the family, and it's unbelievable the number of uh, pictures and of course the sad thing is that that I was an only child and there are enough baby pictures to paper wallpaper at least three bedrooms. If I find another baby picture of me, I think I'm going to burn the whole mass. But I ran across in something that had been my grandmother's an article clip from the Houston Chronicle's a two column article with inch high headlines it says polio victim pulled from iron lung to give birth to baby boy. So I was announced in the Houston Chronicle, little known. So that story made it back then. That was a big story. And it summarized all the information about the polio epidemic at at that particular time. But I always wondered about when I was little, praying for my mother that she would walk again. When she was young then, in her 20s, I have very vivid memories of her putting on these uh, braces, like President uh, Franklin Roosevelt always wore, he could not walk when he was president. A lot of people don't realize that, but when you saw him walk, he was on braces. He did not want the public to see him in a wheelchair, but he was in a wheelchair, and he would put these braces on. They were very painful. It took a while to put them, dress him every morning. Put these braces on, and they would just lock his legs in place. And he learned how to walk by just swinging his legs and he would have one hand on his son's arm or another aide's arm and one on the other, and they were holding him him up. And he would just swing back and forth, his body using the momentum of his upper torso in order to give the appearance of walking. That man had an iron will to do that. And I remember my mother... Uh, working out as a young child with those braces, hoping that somehow she would be able to walk again and praying every night that God would restore uh, strength to her legs and heal her. And that never happened. And see, if you follow certain types of, of healing theology today, they would say, well, you just didn't have enough faith. You need to have the faith of a child. Golly, I was six years old, seven years old. I was a believer. I knew what it meant to be in fellowship. And I had the faith of a child. I really believed Jesus could do that. But it wasn't his will. God has a reason, and we may not know what it is, but God has reason why he allows suffering. And when we get to heaven, uh, we may understand it. But we may not because we're still going to have finite intelligence. And remember, this is the point of the entire theology of the book of Job is that when it came down to the final answer, God did not give Job an answer because the, as God asked all of these rhetorical questions of Job, he's pointing out that Job is too limited in his thinking to be able to comprehend uh, all of these aspects of creation. How in the world could he comprehend the, the the data related to why God allowed this suffering to come into his life? It's a matter of trust. It's a matter it's it's a matter of faith, and God, there's only a limited few that were healed, and they were chosen by God for a purpose. And of course, today, you know, people of a liberal mindset would be God, would probably want to say that God was unfair. He wasn't fair to everybody else. Everybody should have uh, the same thing, and that's that's a total distortion of the meaning of fairness. It's a Marxist view of fairness. It's not a biblical view of uh, of fairness. And so Peter is involved in this to demonstrate his own credentials. He heals uh, Aeneas using the same sort of command that Jesus gave to the uh, paralyzed uh, man back in Luke that we looked at uh, last time in Luke chapter 5. Uh, you can also look at Matthew 9, 6 and John 5, 8 to see other examples uh, where Jesus healed uh, those who were paralyzed uh, in the in the Old Testament. And then in the second part, we see the restoration to life of Tabitha also imitating the miracles of, of Jesus in raising, for example, Lazarus uh, from the dead. But there's one interesting episode that is... It just shows that that in the original, you pick up on some little nuances that that show these kinds of parallels. In Acts 9.40, Peter is addressing Tabitha, known as Dorcas by the Greeks. And remember, Jaffa at this time is primarily a Gentile city. And he says, Tabitha, calling her name, Tabitha, uh, arise. Now, if he spoke in Aramaic as Jesus did... In Mark 5:41, when he is taking the child of Jairus. Jairus was the chief official in a, in a synagogue, and his uh, young child had died, and Jesus goes to the home, and he commands her to arise from her deathbed. And in Aramaic, it's Talitha kumi. Talitha and Tabitha differ by only one letter in the Aramaic. So if you re- if you read this you see that there is a an interesting uh parallel between these these two particular uh episodes and that didn't happen by chance that this woman who died was named Tabitha it could have been Mary it could have been Martha it could have been any number of names but the woman that is that dies is named Tabitha a name that is only one letter different from the command that Jesus used in Mark 5.41, Talitha, meaning uh, little girl. Second thing, Another thing I want to point out regarding healing was that this was a sign of the apostles. I want you to notice that when the believers in Jaffa needed someone to come and to restore life to Tabitha, they didn't They didn't think that it was their job to do it. They're not praying to God to heal her. They knew that only an apostle or an associate of an apostle had the ability to perform this kind of miracle. And that's what Paul says later on. This was a sign of an apostle. The only others who had were said to perform signs and wonders other than the apostles were Stephen and Philip. No one else in the New Testament performs signs and wonders because it is an indication of their credentials as an apostle. So it wasn't because they lacked faith. How do we know that? Why do we know that it wasn't because they lacked faith? Because they understood the word of God and believed it, so they went and got Peter that he was an apostle. They didn't lack faith. They had faith that God was true to his word, and that God would heal through an apostle. So they went to get an apostle. They're not weak in faith, they're strong in faith and trusting in God to li- to do things the way he said. One of the problems that I've often run into in talking to some people about the whole charismatic issue is they say that, well, you're just limiting God. No, I, the, God limits himself by what he's revealed to us. I'm just trusting God's word that he's going to do what he says he's going to do and limits himself the way he says he will uh, limit himself. So as a result of this, there's a great witness evidence that goes out all around. It became known throughout all of Jaffa, and many believed on the Lord. Again, I'm emphasizing they didn't walk an aisle. They didn't commit themselves to Jesus. They didn't invite Jesus into their heart. The biblical terminologies we'll see here, and we'll see it again again when we get to acts 10:43 which says to him this is in peter's message to Cornelius and his family to him that is jesus all the prophets witness that through his name whoever invites him into their heart did it say that no whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins So that's the key word. If you want to get to heaven, you have to believe, which means that you have to accept as true that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the promised, prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. So it became known throughout all Jaffa, and many believed on the Lord. And then it says, so it was that he stayed many days in Jaffa with Simon a Tanner. Now, I pointed out last time, as we brought this to a close, that this is extremely interesting that Peter is staying with Simon, the tanner, because a tanner was not a well-respected occupation among uh, the observant Jews. A tanner was someone who dealt with the dead, dealt with the skin of dead animals who was constantly in contact with the dead and with that which had been in contact with the dead, and this was prohibited. It rendered a person... Ritually unclean, so he would be unclean until nightfall. So that would mean that it's not all the time, but during the day, Simon the Tanner was ritually unclean. This is stated uh, in the Torah, in Leviticus 39 and 40, where we read, If any animal which you may eat dies, that is, an edible animal or a clean animal dies, he who touches its carcass, you can't clean a, an animal you can't skin it without touching it. Uh, he who t- but is it a sin to touch it? Absolutely not, because you can wear the clothes. You were supposed to wear the clothes. God did this in the garden. He did, didn't make him ceremonially unclean because the law wasn't in effect then. That was part of the law, and that didn't come into effect until Moses. Uh, it's not a universal absolute. It was part of the Mosaic ritual system. If any animal which you may eat dies, that is, any animal that's clean dies, he who touches its its carcass shall be clean until evening, not overnight, but just until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. He also who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So this was the Mosaic Law uh, description. Now, in Jewish culture, therefore, tanning was an unclean occupation because they were constantly in contact with the dead bodies of animals, so it rendered them ritually impure, so there would have to be a sacrifice for that, or in this case, what it just says, when the sun went down, then they would be uh, clean. Uh, Tanners usually worked very close to their homes, which, because of the ritual uncleanness and the odor uh, it was required that they live uh, that their homes be at least twenty five yards outside the border of a city or a town. so they couldn't live in the city limits. They had railroad tracks that had been on the other side of the tracks. They were socially unacceptable and they were ranked alongside as some of those socially acceptable uh, 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 careers as prostitution, Dung collecting, donkey drivers, and gamblers. So they were the lowest, lowest socioeconomic. Now, why did they have to do dung collecting? Because people, the mode of transportation, horses and donkeys and oxen, and they're going to leave a trail of excrement down the roads. People today want to get rid of cars. What are we going to go back to? Horses? They have no idea the pollution that's going to come from horses. All of the horse excrement and cattle excrement, not to mention all of the gas. Think about that. Just all of the gas that comes out of all the... They complain about the gas from all the cattle now contributing to global warming. Let's get rid of the cars and go back to horses, and we're really going to see global warming. It'll get just... you know The, the solutions of the environmentalist wacko left... Is it just always makes things worse. It's just amazing. So uh, anyway, the dung collecting was a necessary occupation. It had to keep the streets clean, but they were not very high up the ladder. You didn't want to hear your uh, son or daughter in kindergarten saying, well, when I grow up, I want to be a dung collector. Sort of reminds me of Patton's line about shoveling in Louisiana during the war. So a, an Orthodox Jew would never accept the hospitality of a tanner, but Peter is. So that indicates that Peter's already shifting in his thing. He's beginning to understand that this dispensational shift has taken place. The law's no longer in effect. He still has problems. Remember, in Galatians 2, Paul comes down and has to reprimand him because when uh uh, he, when, when he went to Antioch, he was eating with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. He, it took him a while to really implement the lesson. So don't judge him too harshly because I haven't noticed most of us implementing our lessons any quicker. All right? Some people give Peter a bum rap. He's a little slow to learn. Uh, but Peter was really pretty quick. Now, one of the things we're going to see here is Peter needed to hear things three times. That tells me Peter was very, very smart. Because studies today show that geniuses need to hear something repeated six or seven times to remember it. The rest of us need to hear things repeated 26 or 27 times. But Peter only needed to have things repeated three times. Jesus talked about the fact that uh, uh, before the the cock crowed three times, he would, what, betray him three times. Peter did things in threes. And then uh, three times Jesus had to say, Peter, do you love me? And here, three times, God's gonna to have to tell Peter that it's okay to, uh, to eat from I- any animal because it's all been rendered, uh, it's all been rendered, uh, clean. So, Luke 39 and 40 is, is a passage for, uh, rendering it unclean. So, we're in Jaffa, or Jaffa, with Simon the Tanner, and we move right along. Remember, no, no chapter divisions, verse divisions in the original. We're introduced to another individual, so we're going to shift gears to talk about uh, the next individual uh, cor- called uh, by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, or actually the Italian cohort. So let's think, take things in order of mention Caesarea first, Cornelius sec- second and then we'll understand what it means to be a centurion of the Italian uh, regiment. Now, this is show-and-tell time. One of my favorite places to go in Israel is Caesarea Maritima. It is a fabulous place, tremendous ruins, and it's also right on the Mediterranean, and it is absolutely uh, gorgeous. This is an artist's rendition of what Caesarea Maritima looked like uh, in its heyday in the first uh, first century, when it was the seat of the procurators of of, uh, of Rome over the province of of Judea, it was a remarkable architectural uh, glory built by Herod the Great the the chief architect of Judea uh, It's mentioned in scripture in uh, several places it's mentioned in Acts. I've struggled with what color to put up here to get a good contrast, so if you can't read it, I'll uh, clarify it for you. The first, it's mentioned in Acts 8.40 and 21.8 and 9, where Philip, uh, mentioning that Philip and his daughters lived there. Uh, second, it's mentioned in Acts 10, chapters 10 and 11, where we are, the, mentioning the conversion of Cornelius and his household. In Acts 12.19-24, through 24, Herod Agrippa gets a case of self-absorption. The crowd says, oh, he looks like a god. And he thinks he is. He had a Messiah complex, and suddenly he was eaten with worms and died right in front of them. That's the third mention of Caesarea, Acts 12, 19 to 24. Fourth mention is in Acts 9, 30. Uh, at the uh, uh, mention here, and then... Um, Acts 18, 22 and 21, 8 to 16 as a port. This was a port used by the Apostle Paul four times in Scripture as he left. This was the most significant port in the western Mediterranean. It's the first artificial harbor uh, to to be constructed and constructed by Herod the Great. And then lastly, it's mentioned in Acts 23, uh, 23, because the Apostle Paul was imprisoned here in Caesarea for two years. That would be a great place to be imprisoned. It was quite uh, quite lovely, quite gorgeous. There's a, a photo of it. You see the beautiful blue Mediterranean. You're looking out here on this set of of uh, columns is where the upper part of the palace had been located. The lower part is down here. We'll see a better picture of that there. This whole area here where these columns are represented, the upper part of the palace and this is where the Apostle Paul would have met with Festus and also um, with Herod Agrippa the uh, the second. It was originally a Phoenician site that was a small fortified harbor called Strato's Tower, and it was built in the middle of the third century uh, third century BC. It was uh, significant in terms of the. Uh, it was based on an ancient Phoenician site, and it was named for Straton. Straton, the Greek form of Abdashtart, who was a Sidonian king. Abdashtart is spelled A B D A S H T A R T. In the uh, second century BC, it was uh, conquered by the Hasmonean leader, uh, Alexander Janius, who made it part of Judah. So it became incorporated into uh, the territory of Judah. And at that time, Jews began to live there. Now, there was a strong, thriving Jewish community there uh, during the first century, but it was primarily a Gentile town. There were five cohorts, uh, Roman cohorts stationed there. When uh, Pompey conquered, uh, when the Roman general Pompey conquered uh, Judea in 63 B.C., the city became a non-Jewish city or a Gentile city again. And then uh, fourth point, Augustus gave the city to King Herod the Great, whose dates are 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and he rebuilt the city between 22 B.C. and 10 B.C. He renamed the city Caesarea in the honor of Caesar Augustus, and that is, uh, it, it, he just, it, it's a remarkable place. It's the uh, first artificial harbor. There we see an artist reconstruction of this artificial harbor that was built by Herod the Great, just absolutely uh, magnificent. And that's the harbor. And now in this slide, you're looking across, that's the remains of the harbor uh, across the water, uh, the waterway there. To the right, you see that there was a, uh, a, a, a place for chariot races uh, just to the right, uh, just a huge, tremendous area. Uh, sixth point is that, let me... By 40 A.D., this is the seat of the government of Herod Agrippa I, and one of the significant things here is that Pontius Pilate would have gone there, and this was his seat, and he would just went to Jerusalem that Passover, uh, for Passover, and then he would have gone back. And we have discovered an inscription referring to uh, Pontius Pilate that documents and validates the biblical record that Pontius Pilate was indeed the procurator of, of Judea. This is a picture... Of the, uh, of the, um, what it says, so you can understand it a little bit. It's got an inscription, and you can see there's Hebrew written on um, the top left quarter panel. Translated Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, erected a building dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. The words that are in parenthesis are reconstructed. They're assumed that that's what's in there. Uh, To the right, you see a depiction of what's there. It just has the word here, Tiberium, uh, has the last letter of a word that's here. Then we have Pontius Pilatus, uh, Prefectus, uh, Medea, and then we only have one letter in the last line. So here we have uh, historical confirmation of the existence of Pontius Pilate. And this is not the original; this is what 's there in Caesarea, so you can see it 's a little we- this is a, it was a little weathered, but they could uh, use their various skills to uh, discover what words were there. The original is actually located in the Israel Museum in uh, in Jerusalem. We went there on the on the last trip and saw that so this is the area of the of the of the cherry races and the stadium to the right over here, and you see the bema seat for the judges here, and then it would the city uh, was built out uh, behind that. Now, in this particular slide, this is the lower palace area. Uh, this was they there was probably a large pool there cut out into the stone where that uh, rock where you see the rock cut, and in this slide. We see the artist depiction of what the original uh, looked like. So, just I'll back it up so you can see. This is what remains, and then this is the palace. You have the upper palace here, lower palace down below, and this is where the Apostle Paul would have would have appeared. There's also a Colosseum there that's been reconstructed, and they still have uh, some concerts there, opera things of that nature. The Romans also built. A rather large, uh, aqueduct system to bring water into Caesarea. And that is quite an engineering thing to, uh, to look at today and to see all that they did in, in, uh, all that Herod did in building up, uh, building up Caes- Caesarea. Now, after the Bible, Caesarea had quite an interesting history. In A.D. 60, so this is about the time the Apostle Paul ends up in Rome. The second time he dies, about about the first time rather, he ends up uh, um, by by 65, 66 is when he's killed. But in A.D. 60, this is after Paul had left, not long after he left, but within a year or two after he left. The Roman governor at that time was known as uh, uh, Gesius Florus. And Floreth came after the end of the book of Acts, and he had 20,000 Jews of Caesarea killed, slaughtered in one day, just butchered. This became a major cause of the Jewish, the Jewish revolt that began six years later. So it started here in, in, uh, in, in Caesarea. It's interesting the things that start in Israel. Uh, some of you if you're not a history buff you're going to go hm uh, but in um in in Ukraine, just below ukraine there's this little peninsula that hangs down like a uvula you know, that's the thing in the back of your throat hangs down like a uvula into the Black Sea called the it's called in the russian in russia it's the krim it's the Crimean, and this was uh part why they called it the Crimean War that occurred in the eighteen 18- uh, 1850s and why did the where did the Crimean War start the Crimean War started when a argument violent argument broke out between the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics at the Church of the Holy uh, Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and because this battle violent eruption occurred there the the Russian Orthodox in Russia were afraid of the imperialistic Uh, motivations of the Roman Catholics and so the Russians attacked uh, the Roman Catholic countries and they attacked uh, and then Turkey came in with them and Europe came in on the side of the Muslims so it's just history is really strange. So they had this uh, anyway the Romans had built this particular uh, aqueduct so uh, a lot of strange things have happened Uh, the, the legions that were stationed in Caesarea Proclaimed Vespasian to be emperor uh, during the time after Nero died during the time of the Jewish revolt, and so he conferred the status of a colony or colonia upon the city. And then in uh, 70, 80, 70, so we've gone from 60. The revolt starts in 66. Nero dies just after that. There's a pause in the in the revolt. This is when. Vespasian is declared the emperor. And then in uh, AD 70, uh, Titus forced 2,500 Jewish POWs to fight wild animals in the Colosseum there. So we saw the picture of the Colosseum where they had the chariot races. The Bar Kokhba revolt is related to this. That occurs in 132 to 135. Caesarea became a major supply port for the Romans after the revolt was over, and during that revolt, some seven hundred to eight hundred thousand, seven hundred to eight hundred thousand Jews were killed by the Romans. and afterwards, Rabbi Akiva, who was a spiritual leader of the revolt, was executed here in Caesarea. It was later the home of two church fathers, Origen and Eusebius, and they taught at a Christian school in Caesarea and developed a world-famous Christian library there. By uh, in uh, AD 195, a, an ecclesiastical uh, council met in Caesarea. This is where they made the decision to observe uh, Easter on a Sunday every year instead of the uh, three days after Passover, and that was made here. Uh, Origen lived there and translated a, a, a Bible that called the Hexapla because it had six columns, six different versions. That was translated there. Eusebius became the first, not the first, but became the bishop of Caesarea and wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History, which is our source of understanding church history in the first three centuries of Christianity. Uh, very famous uh, Talmudic rabbis, Hoshiah and Abihu, lived in Caesarea but its great heyday came later in the 4th to the 6th centuries during the uh, Byzantine uh, period. So that just gives you a little bit of an insight into the significance of, uh, of Caesarea. It continues to decline through the uh, Muslim period, and then in the Crusader period it's captured by uh, the Crusader King Baldwin. Well, one of the neat things, the last time we went to Israel I found out that that back in the Roman Catholic section, in a room, they have hanging on the wall the sword and the spurs and the iron crusader cross of Baldwin the First. And uh, I found out that if I go back there and ask the Franciscan monks in charge, they would let us come back and look at it and take pictures, which we did. And a lot of people, some of the other pastors on the trip who wanted to see that got distracted, and so they, a lot of people missed it. But uh, that was kind of a neat thing to see, but King Baldwin captured Caesarea and massacred all of the inhabitants. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in the in the Crusades, which was which was terrible. Uh, Saladin Saladin recaptured the city in 1187, and he killed or enslaved all of the Christians who lived there. So it's, it's got a bloody history. It's taken again during the Third Crusade and uh, in the Sixth Crusade. Uh, Louis the IX of France rebuilt the walls. It's destroyed by the Mamluks in 1291, and it basically stays in ruins until a group of Bosnians who were Muslim came in in the late uh, 19th, 19th century and early 20th century and uh, established a, a a presence there. So that's a little bit about uh, Caesarea. Now Cornelius, he must have been a remarkable individual. He is a non-com, a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. He's a centurion. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer in charge of a hundred soldiers. Now that's a little bit smaller than our modern infantry company in the American army and in the uh, in the Marine Corps Uh, Infantry company can range in size depending on their mission and uh, various other factors between 130 and 160 uh, uh, personnel. They have uh, several uh, noncommissioned officers attached to them, and the highest-ranking noncom in an American infantry company is a first sergeant. So that's roughly equivalent to a, a centurion. It would take a centurion about 15 years to advance up through the ranks to achieve his position. He was considered to be an excellent leader. Polybius, writing in his History of Rome, states that centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. So a centurion is a good, solid, stable leader who can think under pressure and operate under, uh, under pressure. The Roman army was uh, composed of the, the, the core unit was, were the, 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 uh, the centuries, which was 100 soldiers, and it six centuries combined to form a cohort of 600 men, and a cohort was commanded by a tribune. If you remember, in Ben-Hur, remember Ben-Hur with, uh, what was his name, Stephen, uh, who played uh, Masala, Stephen Boyd, and uh, uh, Heston, Charlton Heston is Ben-Hur. I found my book the other day, it was written by Lou Wallace, That's another great story. Lou Wallace was a union general who set out to disprove Christianity. Guess what? He proves Christianity. And so he wrote this novel of the Christ. It's called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And the movie is pretty accurate with the book, but when I was in the seventh grade, they had one of those scholastic book things at 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 my junior high. And that was one of the first paperback books I bought. After, of course, Sherlock Holmes, got to always read through all the Sherlock Holmes, and so I, I got that, and I found that digging through all the Flotsam and Jetsam at my parents' house the other day, I found my Ben Hur book from the seventh grade. So, uh, but Lou Wallace, who was uh, a Union general wrote that to, to demonstrate the truth of Christianity, uh, to tell that story. And then Lou Wallace then became the territorial governor in New Mexico uh, during the time of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, and that's the, the whole background of the John Wayne movie Chisholm. And uh, so he kind of cleaned up that whole mess of the Lincoln County uh, cattle wars. Speaking of Westerns, I'm just discovering great stuff. I found some of you are going to appreciate Others of you are going to go... Who cares? But for those of you who care, I found in almost pristine condition an eight by ten glossy of Roy Rogers and Bullet inscribed to Robbie, Best Wishes Roy Rogers. That is going to be framed by the end of next week. And then I found one with Marshall Dillon and Chester. These are from like the 1956, 57 rodeos back when in Houston, back when it was in the old Coliseum. You know, I, I won't subject you to too many more of these um, memory lane trips, but it's kind of interesting. Anyhow, that was, uh, was Lou Wallace. So Masala, though, that was, that was Ben-Hur's childhood friend, and he came back to Jerusalem as a tribune. And that's when he is supposed. So, a tribune is the commander of, of uh, uh, five uh, of a cohort. Uh, the commander of a cohort. Now, a Roman legion then had ten cohorts. So that'd be a thousand. A legion was a thousand. Cohort a hundred. Then, I mean, a, a century was a hundred, and then a, a, a cohort was uh, fi- five or six hundred. And then a Roman legion had ten ten cohorts commanded by an imperial legate so that'll help you if you read through much of roman uh, history caesarea had five cohorts stationed there or three thousand men it was a large area three thousand soldiers were stationed there another cohort was stationed at the uh, antonio uh, uh, barracks in jerusalem now cornelius is described in this chapter as a devout worshiper of god A certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, not regiment as the uh, New King James translates it. It was the Italian regiment because all hundred members of that cohort came from Italy. And so they are stationed there uh, at Caesarea. He's called a devout man. The word there for uh, devout man is Eusebia. He is a spiritually mature man. Other places it's translated piety, but it really refers to somebody who godlike, who who is really a seeker after God. He's a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, but he's not a believer. He's not an Old Testament saint. He would not need to be saved, again, if he were not, uh, uh, as it's depicted, he becomes a believer only in this chapter. He fears God, though. He's got great positive volition, and he is very kind and good. He gave alms generously to the people. That is, he supported the poor and the sick among the the Jewish people, and he prayed to God. Now, he was a God-fearer. He wasn't a proselyte. That was someone who had converted completely over to Judaism. He's an uncircumcised Gentile who worshiped the God of Israel but had not... Uh, submitted himself to the mosaic law or to jewish uh, customs and what the scripture records here is that all of his household were god-fearers so this is the remember i mentioned about four different levels this is the the uh, level that's uh, he he worshiped god the god of abraham isaac and jacob but did not adopt uh, the or observe the requirements of the law he prayed daily to the god of israel And this reminds us also of the centurion that Jesus dealt with in Luke chapter 7, verse 2. Now we're told in verse 9, about the ninth hour of the day, this would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the afternoon prayers, according to to the Jewish daily ritual calendar. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. So this is the first scene. There's five scenes in this chapter if we think about it as a dramatic play. Five scenes in this chapter, and this is the opening scene where Cornelius is visited by an angel. He sees this angel and says to him, Cornelius, and it's in a vision, God speaking to him. He's not in uh, uh, what we think of today as a mystical state. The Greek does use the word ecstasis or we get our word ecstasy, but we get our word ecstasy from ecstasy, but it's not an ecstatic trance. It just means he is, a, the difference between a, a vision and a dream is a dream occurs at night when you're asleep, and a vision occurs in the daytime when you're wide awake. But they're the same dynamic the same thing happens. So at night, God uh, has appeared in dreams, for example, to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to Daniel, but also visions, which are during the uh, daytime when a person is conscious. So this angel appears, and when he sees in verse 4, he was afraid. He's afraid. It means he's startled, has the idea of being startled, a little bit terrified. It, It really shook him up. It, it, because he's truly had a vision, the people who haven't who claim they have visions don't seem to be too terrified, but every time you see God actually truly intervene in a dream or vision in people's lives in the Old testament, not always but much of the time they're 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 startled they're upset they're a little fearful because God has truly appeared to them so this he he appears and what does what does uh how does Cornelius respond? He says, what is it, Kyrie? What is it, Lord? Now, is he recognizing the lordship of the angel? Hold your place there. Turn back just a couple of pages to Acts chapter 8. And let me make this little point. This is an important uh, important point. Uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 9. Um Well, it's not in Acts chapter 9, it's in one of the parallels, and I didn't uh, look at it, but in one of, the, one of the other parallels in either Acts 22 or Acts 26, where Jesus appeared... Oh, no, here it is, it's in Acts, Acts 9.5. I just went pat got distracted by all those red-letter things in there. Uh, he said, who are you, Lord? And you get people who are into lordship salvation, like John MacArthur and many, many others... They want to impose upon the word, use of the word "curios" here an idea of a recognition of Jesus' deity and a recognition of Jesus' authority. But the word "curier" is used in many contexts, social contexts in the ancient world, was similar to our use of the word "sir," as antiquated as that's getting to be. Uh, that's what it would be comparable to. It's just a polite term of address for someone in authority. And so uh, I would suggest that if Paul is saying, who are you, Lord, and that means he's recognizing the deity and lordship of Jesus, then what in the world are you going to do with Cornelius when this angel shows up and he says, what is it, Lord? Same word. Cornelius isn't recognizing the lordship, the deity, the Uh, sovereignty of the angel he's simply addressing uh, someone he he obviously recognizes as superior and so he dresses with the appropriate term because he's what he's a soldier and soldiers know how to say yes sir and no sir to their superior officers so he says what is it lord And so he that is the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, what does that mean? Simply that this is the way under the Mosaic law that and under Judaism that Cornelius is expressing his positive volition. He's not saved yet, but he wants to be. He is curious. He's He's going to synagogue. He's learning about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows that's the truth. He he hasn't become saved yet. He hasn't understood the the gospel either in an Old Testament sense or in the New Testament sense. But because he is engaged in this activity, God has taken notice. And so he's given a directive then in verse 5. Now send men by the angel, send men to Jaffa or Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, because you have two Simons living in the same house, Simon the Tanner and Simon Peter. You wouldn't want Simon the Tanner to show up down in Caesarea because that wouldn't get them very far spiritually. So he, the angel is very precise, go see Simon Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a Tanner, whose house is by the sea. He'll tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So he takes one of his staff members and two of his household servants and sends them as a delegation down to Jaffa to meet with Peter. So when he explained all of this to them, he sent them to Jaffa. Now, in God's timing, God doesn't give Peter the vision at the same time. He waits until the next day when this delegation is just about there, and then Peter is going to have uh, a a, a vision. As they approach, he has this vision with the tablecloth that comes down, and Peter, I want you to notice something, give you a little homework assignment. Verse 10 says, Then Peter became very hungry and wanted to eat. While they made ready, because right after the afternoon prayers, when they would be making making uh, lunch, which was the main meal of the day, uh, he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But what happens? God gives him a vision. He's still hungry. Now, I know some of you come to church hungry, come to Bible class hungry. Why doesn't he get quiet so I can go to Whataburger afterwards? So he's still hungry, and and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But he doesn't have the means to kill, and he gets all caught up in the the theological conundrum. And three times God has to tell him to kill and eat, and he won't do it, and then the tablecloth is taken to heaven. And Peter's so, so entranced, no pun intended, by what he has seen that he's trying to figure it all out that he forgets that he's hungry. He was really hungry. But now he forgets that he's hungry, and then somebody knocks at the door. Now, your assignment for next time is to find out when Peter eats. He's hungry, and we're going to leave him there until next week. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to see this episode as you've set it up of taking grace to the Gentiles and showing that the, your grace has always been available to the Gentiles because you've always wanted to save all but that you did this through the Jewish people. And so we honor the Jewish people because they are the ones whom you chose, those to whom the promises and the the covenants belong. But you have opened the body of Christ, the people of God today, the church to both Jew and Gentile by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us as we go through this study to come to a real appreciation of your magnificent grace in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.